Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chicago's Legal Latte, a series of podcasts brought to you by Lavelle Law Limited. Throughout this series, the attorneys from Lavelle Law will share their answers to questions about a variety of topics for individuals and small businesses. To participate in today's discussion, you can email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. And uh, so very pleased that you've taken the time to join us again today for another edition here. I think you're going to be uh, glad you did, actually. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell, back for another conversation on a pertinent legal topic. And this week, uh, I think we're going to be able to share some, some very valuable information with you. Joining me for our conversation is Lavelle Law Attorney Jim Voigt. Jim is a regular contributor to the series and, and always brings a great deal of insight and meaningful information, especially if you are a business owner. Now, this week we're going to focus on shareholder agreements, particularly the process for setting terms of sale for a business that is controlled by that type of agreement. Sounds like a messy introduction, but I think we're going to sort it out for you. Let's get to it, first of all, by saying hello to Jim Boyd. Jim, nice to have you with us again. Hey, thanks for having me on. I barely uh, squeezed on just in time on this one. My apologies. Oh, we knew you'd be here. No, not to worry. So, you know, we've, we've got a lot of great content that we've got to dig into, but as you know, I always like to kind of set the table, so to speak. So just give me a very quick description, if you will, of, of what we mean when we're talking about a shareholder agreement from a legal perspective. A shareholder agreement is basically something you have multiple owners in a business, and this would apply, we're going to use uh, some terminology from a corporation today, but all of the concepts we're talking about would apply to an LLC as well. Uh, but all of the owners get together and they decide what are going to be the rules on how we run this company. It can, it can cover a variety of topics. Who's going to be in control of the company? Who are the officers going to be? Who's going to be on the board of directors? And then important questions like, how do we handle profit distributions? When do we pay profit distributions? How much do we pay? And then what we're talking about today is, you know, when would we be required or even have the option to buy somebody back? And then when we do that, how do we figure out how much we're going to pay for those shares? Okay, excellent. And, and really, we could be talking about really any kind of business under this type of an agreement then too, correct? Correct, yes. Okay. All right, so you mentioned, Ray, there could be any number of shareholders in such an agreement. And, you know, at some point, they are may all agree to, to sell that business. Uh, I think what we're going to focus on is is anticipating that case, getting out ahead of that situation, particularly in, in which one or more partners want to get out of the business, but the others want to continue to operate it. So what I'm hearing you say is, as I just mentioned, it's it's best to kind of have all that solved before the situation ever comes up. That's correct, right. One of the things that I, I say, and I always say kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's true, is let's get this in writing and signed while everybody still likes each other. We want to have a nice level-headed conversation uh, when everyone is on the same page. And when a business is newly formed, of course, all the players are in uh, good spirits. So let's let's make a good decision that makes sense, that we all agree to. Um, before there's any sort of an opportunity, you know, sooner or later some sort of strife or stress is going to come up. Let's not then try to figure out how we can all get on the same page. Okay. And I think one other thing to look at there is, you know, you, you referenced the business owners there, and that, that sort of seems like our, our audience. But really, in this case, we might also be talking about a situation in which one of the shareholders dies, and then you're not just talking about the shareholders. Now you're talking about surviving family members, trusts, estates. And if, if you don't have something real clear laid out before that, then, then you really got a whole another problem to deal with, don't you? Exactly right. Now you have a seller. This person now owns the shares. 
and they were never involved in the business. They also have a lot of emotion going on right now. Um, you know, so you're going to hear phrases like, I can't believe you're trying to buy me out for this price and that sort of a thing. So what we want to do is eliminate all of that so that when the time comes to buy somebody out, particularly when you have a sensitive situation like the, the people who've inherited stock from someone who's passed on, um, that everything is very predictable and mechanical and we know exactly how to do it. Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the mechanics specifically. You know, are, are there multiple options that exist in, in how a, a shareholder group would determine what the value is at that point of sale? Yeah, so there's going to be a few different options, and there's two main uh, genres of options. The first is going to be just a fixed number, and we have done uh, shareholder agreements where every year the shareholders, shareholders will sit down and literally agree on a number. Here's what our company is worth. So if the company is worth uh, $100,000 and you own 25% of the stock, that stock is worth $25,000. And each year they will sit down and agree to a new number. Uh, and that's a very simple way to do it, extremely simple way to do it. There's some issues, you know, in terms of you know, we have to assume that the owners have the ability to figure out what that number is going to be. And that's a lot of times when we tell people, hey, why don't you just agree on what the number is, they get, you know, a little deer in the headlights and they say, well, how do we figure that out? So the other option, based on uh, other than just a fixed number, would be to switch over to some sort of way of calculating it. And what we always try to do is we try to uh, find a calculation method that involves the least, and I'll just say it informally, monkeying around with the numbers. Like, for example, mm -hmm. we would never want to value a company based on what its profits are. That seems to make sense. But it is so easy to manipulate profits in terms of increasing one person's salary and these sorts of things. We look for a number that's hard to manipulate. Okay. So what we'll do a lot of times is figure out, we'll calculate, we'll agree that the, the value of the company will be based on you know, gross earnings or two years of gross earnings, something like that, or more sophisticated methods, which the explanation of which is a little outside our scope, but you know, a calculation based on multiple years of EBITDA, which is a uh, calculation of interest before earnings, depreciation, taxes, um, and amortization. So there, are, I guess the takeaway would be, without going into too much detail, if we're going to calculate it, let's calculate it based on a number that's hard to funge, so to speak, uh, so that it's reliable. The last option would be to just have the accountants of the company come up with a value. And that's a little tough because a lot of times people argue over whether the account was right. But those are your basic options. Fixed number based on a calculation or a professional valuation. Now, as you look at this from a legal perspective in terms of you know putting those agreements together and then and then executing them at the appropriate time, or is there any advantage or is one of those approaches more advantageous uh, than the, than the others? Well, the, there's going to be advantages and disadvantages to both. To both, mm -hmm. as we, I touched on a little bit already, when you're looking at that fixed number, the biggest advantage that you have there is simplicity. But there's a warning that we have to build into that. At some point, you're going to get to a point where you can no longer agree, or you may get to a point where you can no longer agree on what that number should be. So everyone got together last year, and they agreed that the company was worth $8 million. Well, this year, they're kind of fighting about it. So what do we do now if we can't agree to it? If you're going to build a provision in that says that the number, uh, the value of the company is based on the agreement of the shareholders, the fail-safe you want to build in is if they can't agree, it will stay as of the last time that they agreed. So we never have this wide-open um, number. Now, if the value of the company keeps going up, it's an incentive to obviously you know, come to some sort of a consensus. So calculations based on gross earnings are always very simple because there's not a lot you can do to, to mess with that number. You earned as much as you earned. 
so that's another one that's that's uh, well suited to a company maybe more in the service industry. So, for example, you wouldn't use calculations based on gross earnings necessarily for like a manufacturing company where they have huge costs associated. So they may have made $25 million, but they might have spent $20 million just to get there. So mm-hmm. when you have a company that's mostly maybe a service industry, a calculation based on gross earnings makes a certain amount of sense. You just need to decide how many years it's going to be. Okay. A company well, that has a lot of. Ex- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I did. please finish up there because I was going to. I was going to kind of dig into that a little bit more. So let, let's let you finish sure. first. Yeah, and I. I, I mean, I kind of. I can go into you know sort of um, technical mode here and kind of fly off on a tangent. So keep me under control. Um, so then you say, well, what if I am a manufacturer and I have a ton of expenses? You know, that's when you get into a situation where maybe EBITDA would be um, a, a better method. The biggest mm-hmm. takeaway here is going to be don't just pick one because it makes. You know, it's the easiest one. Well, let's just pick this one because that works. Sit down with a good advisor. That could be an attorney that knows business law or it could be a CPA and and make a decision, a really smart, informed decision as to which method you're going to use to figure out what the calculation value should be for your company. Okay. And I, I want to follow up on that a little bit. And, and the information we're getting is, is uh, being provided by my guest, Jim Voigt. Jim's an attorney at Laval Law Limited and, and not only a fantastic guest here, but a key contributor of articles and posts regarding business law at LavelleLaw.com. I strongly suggest stopping by that site again, LavelleLaw.com, when the time permits, dig into a little bit more of, of Jim's work. Um, and, and, Jim, you were talking there about the EBITDA approach, um, you know, talking also about, you know, gross revenues, gross profits. You mentioned specifically a service business. Would the process of evaluating be different for, as you said, a company that has a lot of hard assets like a building and, and a lot of supplies as opposed to that service business that may not have a lot of, uh, you know, content on the books. Yeah, let's say that you're just a land developer. There's really not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of expenses. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you pick up land. Somebody else really does the construction for you. That's done by a different company. You kind of purchase the land, hold it, uh, and then maybe resell it or, or lease it out. So there, you know, the majority of your value may or may not come from, you know, constant revenue stream. It just has more to do with what assets do you hold. Um, and or a, like a holding company would be another good example of that. Then you could get into just you know a simple form, and I'm putting simple in quotes here, a simple form of book value, the assets of the company minus its liabilities. The concern that you run into there is as time goes by, everyone can agree that when you bought this company, or I'm sorry, when you bought a building for $500,000 and started the company, that the company is worth $500,000. The problem is 15 years later, what is it worth now? So in order to run based on book value, you're going to need to have um, relatively frequent updates to your appraisals. So you may have to be paying professionals to appraise. We had a, a client that is a manufacturer that recently did an appraisal, and it was quite an ordeal. Five manufacturing sites. They own the real estate at all five. They have a lot of equipment at each of these that each had to be appraised. So it was an expensive process. I think the total cost with everybody we had involved in that appraisal was probably $30,000. So there's nothing wrong with doing it that way. You just need to understand that if you're going to go by book value because about the only thing your company does is hold assets, then you're going to want to have those appraised from time to time to keep everybody on the same page. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that time process there because I I think I heard you say earlier that you know the the shareholders should sit down and and discuss and agree on a regular basis. So it sounds like this should get revised periodically. And are you suggesting annually is the way to go? What we do in Illinois, if you're a corporation, LLCs are not required to do this, but we recommend it anyway. 
We recommend that the owners of the company sit down and just review what's going on with the business in general. To me, it's the cheapest insurance you can have to prevent uh, other shareholder disputes on any topic from festering to the point that they become litigation. So what we would say is, yes, you should sit down every year and talk about a variety of topics, but what the company is worth should be one of those. Here's the key, though. You want to develop a, a shareholder agreement that anticipates everyone sitting down and coming to a nice agreement on an annual basis, but isn't reliant upon everyone getting along with each other. So you want to have a nice system that has a fail-safe in case people start disagreeing about what the value of the company is. Okay, and that's so I'm going to ask you one question now that is probably a podcast unto itself, but tell you we've only got 30 seconds to answer it, which is, you know, once this process is agreed on and they agree which way they're going to do it and they put it into a shareholder agreement, is that then pretty much ironclad, or if there's a dispute later, does the way they did it or the document itself uh, open to you know, some question at some point. The idea is we want to have that document be ironclad, so you want to have it well-drafted so that nobody complains, I didn't understand it, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, you're going to go back to that shareholder agreement, so it's right to do it the right way. Um, Ironclad is a word I would never use because, of course, as lawyers, we fight about the validity of anything. Um, But, yeah, the idea is for that shareholder agreement to be ironclad. Now, that doesn't mean it can never be changed. As long as everyone agrees, there's a method in that shareholder agreement to amend it, as long as that method is followed, you could change what the shareholder agreement itself says, but the idea would always be able to go back and rely on, in court, what that agreement says. Okay. Well, I appreciate that quick answer there, as well as all the detail that uh, Jim provided. It's always so good when he stops by, uh, great information that he's able to share with us. And uh, looking ahead, we are edging right up against the deadline for filing federal income taxes. So, Uh, I'll be bringing uh, Timothy Hughes in. Tim is one of the partners at Lavelle Law. He's going to talk about what should be done. This is next week's podcast. When a person cannot pay what they owe on April 15th. Tim's actually hosting a series of seminars this month on that topic, and he's going to help us uh, kind of walk through the scenario here as we get into that discussion next week. So thanks to Jim Voigt today. We look forward to Timothy Hughes next week, and we certainly look forward to you being with us as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Chicago's Legal Latte. If you have any questions or topics for a future episode, please call Lavelle Law Limited at 847-705-7555 or email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com.